Chapter 2 of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey Audrey introduces herself. Indeed, all faults, had they been ten times more and greater, would have been neutralized by that supreme expression of her features, the unity of which every lineament in the fixed parts, and every undulation in the moving parts of her countenance, concurred, viz. a sunny benignity, a radiant graciousness, such as in this world I never saw surpassed. In this innocent fashion had Audrey Ross solved the guardian knot of family difficulty, leaving her mother and sister eyeing each other with the aghast looks of defeated conspirators, and it must be owned that many a tangled scheme that would have been patiently and laboriously unravelled by the skilled fingers of Geraldine was spoilt in this manner by the quick impulsiveness of Audrey. No two sisters could be greater contrasts to each other, while young Mrs. Hawcart laid an undue stress on what may be termed the minor morals, the small properties and lesser virtues that lie on the surface of things and give life its polish. Audrey was forever riding full tilt against prejudices or raising a crusade against what she chose to term the bugbear of feminine existence, conventionality. Not that Audrey was a strong-minded person or a stickler for women's rights, she had no advanced notions, no crude theories on the subject of emancipation. It was only, to borrow Captain Burnett's words, that her headlong sympathies carried her away. A passionate instinct of pity always made her range herself on the losing side. Her virtues were unequally balanced, and her generosity threatened to degenerate into weakness. Most women loved to feel the support of a stronger nature. Audrey loved to support others. Any form of suffering, mental or physical, appealed to her irresistibly. Her sympathy was often misplaced and excessive, and her power of self-effacement under some circumstances was even more remarkable, the word self-effacement being rightly used here, as self-sacrifice presupposes some consciousness of action. It was this last trait that caused genuine anxiety to those who knew and loved Audrey best, for who can tell to what lengths a generous nature may go, to whom any form of pain is intolerable, and every beggar, worthy or unworthy, a human brother or sister, with claims to consideration. If Audrey were not as clever as her elder sister, he had more originality. She was also far more independent in her modes of action or thought, and went on her way without reference to others. It is not that I think myself wiser than other people, she said once to her cousin, who had just been delivering her a lecture on this subject. Of course I am always making mistakes. Everyone does. But you see, Michael, I have lived so long with myself, exactly two and twenty years, and so I must know most about myself and what is best for this young person, tapping herself playfully. Audrey was certainly not so handsome as her sister, she had neither Geraldine's perfection of feature nor her exquisite colouring, but she had her good points, like other people. Her hair was soft and brown, and there was a golden tinge in it that was greatly admired. There was also a depth and expression in her grey eyes that Geraldine lacked, but the charm of Audrey's face was her smile. It was no facial contortion, no mere lip service. It was a heart illumination, a sudden radiance that seemed to light up every feature, which brought a certain lovely dimple into play. And there was one other thing noticeable in Audrey, and which brought the sisters into still sharper contrast. She was lamentably deficient in taste, and though personally neat, was rather careless on the subject of dress. 
She liked an old gown better than a new one, was never quite sure which colour suited her best, and felt just as happy paying a round of calls in an old cambric as in the best tailor-made gown. It was on this subject that she and Geraldine differed most. No amount of spoken wisdom could make Audrey see that she was neglecting her opportunities to a culpable degree, that while other forms of eccentricity might be forgiven, the one unpardonable sin in Geraldine's code was Audrey's refusal to make the breast of herself. And you do look so nice when you are well dressed, she observed, with mournful affection on one occasion when Audrey had specially disappointed her. You have a beautiful figure. Madame Latouche said so herself and yet you would wear that hideous gown Miss Sewell has made, and at Miss Charrington's at home, too. How many people were affected by this sad occurrence? asked Audrey scornfully. My dear Gage, your tone is truly tragical. Was it my clothes or me, poor little me, that Mrs. Charrington invited wanted to see? Do you know, Michael? For that young man was present. I have such a grand idea for the future, a fashion to come in with Wagner's music and aesthetics and female lawyers. In fact, an advanced theory worthy of the 19th century. You know how people hate at-homes and how bored they are and how they grumble at the crush and the crowd. Well, I do believe they are hideous products of civilization, he returned with an air of candor. Just so. Well, now for my idea. Oh, I must send it to Punch. I really must. My proposition is that people should send their card by their lady's maid, and also the toilette intended for that afternoon to be inspected by the hostess. Can you not imagine the scene? First comes the announcement by the butler. Lady Fitzmaurice's clothes. Enter smiling lady's maid, bearing a wondrously braided skirt with plush mantle and bonnet with pheasant's wing. Hostess bows, smiles and inspects garments through her eyeglasses. Charming! Everything Lady Fitzmaurice wears is in such perfect taste. My dear Cecilia, that bonnet would just suit me. Make a note of it, please. My compliments to her ladyship. Now then, for Mrs. Grenville, and so on. Crowd still, you see, but no handshaking, no confusion of voices, and then the wonderful economy, no tea and coffee, no ices, no professional artistes, only a little refreshment, perhaps, in the servants' hall. Audrey, how can you talk such nonsense? returned her sister, severely. But Captain Burnett gave his low laugh of amusement. He reveled in the girl's odd speeches. He thought Audrey's nonsense worth more than all Geraldine's sense. He even enjoyed, with a man's insouciance, her daring disregard of conventionality. How difficult it is for a person thoroughly to know him or herself, unless he or she be morbidly addicted to incessant self-examination. Audrey thought that it was mere neighborliness that induced her to call on the Blakes that afternoon. She had no idea that a strong curiosity made her wish to interview the newcomers. Rutherford was far too confined an area for a liberal mind like Audrey's. Her large and intense nature demanded fuller scope of its energies. With the exception of boys, who certainly preponderated in Rutherford, there were far too few human beings to satisfy Audrey. Every fresh face was therefore hailed by her with joy, although perhaps she hardly went to Dr. Johnson's length when he complained that he considered that day lost and what she had not made a new acquaintance. Still, her social instincts were not sufficiently nourished. The few people were busy people. They had a tiresome habit, too, of forming cliques, and in many ways they disappointed her. With her richer neighbours, especially among the hill houses, Geraldine was the reigning favourite. Mrs. Charrington was devoted to her. Only little Mrs. Stanfield of Rossendale thought there was no one in the world like dear Audrey Ross. Audrey would not have mentioned her little scheme to her mother for worlds. 
Her mother was not a safe agent. She had long ago made Geraldine her conscience-keeper. But she had no objection to tell her father when she met him walking down the hill with his hands behind him and evidently revolving his next Sunday's sermon. Dr. Ross was rather a fine-looking man. He had grown grey early, and his near sight obliged him to wear spectacles. But his keen, clever face and the benevolent and kindly air that distinguished him always attracted people to him. At times he was a little absent and whimsical, and those who knew them both well declared that Audrey had got all her original ideas and unconventional ways from the doctor. Father, I am going to call on the Blakes, she observed, as he was about to pass her, as he would a stranger. See me, Audrey, I was startled me. I was deep in original sin, I believe. The Blakes, oh, I told young Blake to come up to dinner tonight. I want Michael to see him. Pretty well, give my respects to Mrs. Blake, and if there be any service we can render her, be sure you offer it. And Dr. Ross walked on, quite unconscious that his daughter had retraced her steps and was following him towards the town. If I won't disturb him with my chatter, she thought, and I may as well go to Gage tomorrow. She is sure to keep me, and then it would be rather awkward if she should take it into her head to talk about the Blakes. She might want to go with me, or perhaps, which is more likely, she would make a fuss about my going so soon. If you want to do a thing, do it quickly, and without telling anyone. That's my motto. Father is no one. If I were going to run away from home or do anything equally ridiculous, I should be sure to tell father first. He would only recommend me to go first class, and be sure to take a cab at the other end, bless him. Dr. Ross walked on in a leisurely, thoughtful fashion, not too abstracted, however, to wave his hand slightly as knots of boys saluted him in passing. Audrey had a nod and smile for them all. At the hill houses and at the schoolhouse, Geraldine might be the acknowledged favourite, but every boy in the upper and the lower school was Audrey's sworn adherent. She was their liege lady for whom they were proud to do service, and more than one of the prefects cherished a tremulous passion for the doctor's daughter, together with his budding moustache, and strange to say, was none the worse for the mild disease. A pleasant lane led from the hill to the town, with sloping meadows on one side. It was a lovely afternoon in June, and groups of boys were racing down the field path on their way to the cricket ground. Audrey looked after them with a vivid interest. How happy they all look, she said to herself. I do believe a boy, a really honest, healthy English boy, is one of the finest things in the creation. They are far happier than girls. They have more freedom, more zest in their lives. If they work hard, they play well. Every faculty of mind and body is trained to perfection. Look at Willie Darner running down that path. He is just crazy with the summer wind and the frolic of an afternoon's holiday. There is nothing to match with his enjoyment unless it be a kitten sporting with the flying leaves or a butterfly floating in the sunshine. He has not a care, that boy, except how he is to get over the ground fast enough. Audrey had only a little bit of the town to traverse, but her progress was almost as slow and stately as a queen's. She had so many friends to greet, so many smiles and nods and how-do-do's to execute. But at last she arrived at her destination. The grey cottage was a small stone house placed between Dr. Ross's house and the schoolhouse, with two windows overlooking the street. The living rooms were at the back, and the view from them was far pleasanter, as Audrey well knew. From the drawing-room, one looked down on the rugged court of the skull-house, and on the grey old arches through which one passed to the chapel and library. The quaint old buildings with a stone façade, hoary with age, was the one feature of interest that always made Audrey think the grey cottage one of the pleasantest houses in Rutherford. Audrey knew every room. 
She had looked out on the old schoolhouse often. She knew exactly how it looked in the moonlight, or on a winter's day when the snow lay on the ground, and the ruddy light of a December sunset tinged the windows and threw a halo over the old buildings. But she liked to see it best in the dim starlight, when all sorts of shadows seemed to lurk between the arches, and a strange, solemn light invested it with a legendary and imaginative interest. A heavy green gate shut off the great cottage from the road. Audrey opened it and walked up to the door, which had always stood open in the old days when her friends, the Powers, had lived there. It was open now. A profusion of packing cases blocked up the spacious courtyard, and a black retriever was lying on some loose straw, evidently keeping watch and ward over them. He shook himself lazily as Audrey spoke to him, and then wagged his tail in a friendly fashion, and finally uttered a short bark of welcome. Audrey stooped down and stroked his glossy head. She always made friends with every animal. She had a large four-footed acquaintance with whom she was on excellent terms, from Jenny, the cobbler's donkey, down to Tim, the little white terrier that belonged to the sweep. She had just lost her own companion and follower, a splendid St. Bernard puppy, and had not yet replaced him. As she fondled the dog, she heard a slight sound near her, and, looking up, met the inquiring gaze of a pair of wide-open brown eyes. They belonged to a girl of fourteen, a slight, thin slip of a girl in a shabby dress that she had outgrown, and thick, dark hair tied loosely with a ribbon and falling in a wavy mass over her shoulders, and a small, sallow face, looking at the present moment very shy and uncomfortable. If you please, she began timidly, and twisting her hands awkwardly as she spoke, Mamma is very tired and has gone to lie down. We only moved in yesterday, and the place is in such a muddle. Oh, yes, of course it is in a muddle, replied Audrey in her pleasant, easy fashion. That is exactly what I called, to see if I could be of any assistance. I am Miss Ross from the lower school. Will you let me come in and speak to you? You are Miss Blake, are you not? Yes, I am Molly, returned the girl, reddening and looking still more uncomfortable. I'm very sorry, Miss Ross, and it's very good of you to call so soon, but there is no place fit to ask you to sit down. Biddy is such a bad manager, she ought to have got things far more comfortable for us. But she is old, and... Miss Molly, where am I to find the teapot? called out a voice belonging to some invisible body, a voice with the unmistakable brogue. There's the mistress just died for a cup of tea, and how'll I be giving it to her without the teapot, and it may be one of these dozen hampers, but I'll lock to it. I am coming, Biddy, sighed the girl wearily and the flush of annoyance deepened in her cheek. Somehow that tired young face, burdened with some extra care, appealed to Audrey's quick sympathies. She put out her hand and gave her a light push as she stood blocking up the entry. My dear, I will help you look for the teapot, she said in the kindest voice possible. You are just tired to death, and of course it is natural that your mother should want her tea. If we cannot find it, I will run round and borrow one from the rights. Everyone knows what moving is. One has to undergo all sorts of discomforts. Let me put down my sunshade and lace scarf, and then you will see how useful I can be. And Audrey walked into the house, leaving Molly tongue-tied with astonishment, and marched into the dining room, which certainly looked a chaos, with dusty chairs, tables, Half-emptied hampers, books, pictures, all jumbled up together with no sort of arrangement, just as the men had deposited them from the vans. Here, however, she paused, slightly taken aback by the sight of another dark head which raised itself over the sofa cushions, while another pair of brown eyes regarded her with equal astonishment. "'It's only Kester,' whispered Molly. "'I think he's asleep. 
Kester, Miss Ross kindly wishes to help us a little, but did, did you ever see such a place? Speaking in a tone of disgust and shrugging her shoulders. Molly can't be everywhere, rejoined the boy, trying to drag himself off the sofa as he spoke. And then Audrey saw he was a cripple. He looked about fifteen, but his long, melancholy face had nothing boyish about it. The poor lad was evidently a chronic sufferer. There was a permanent look of ill health stamped on his features, and the beautiful dark eyes had a plaintive look in them. Molly does her best, he went on almost irritably, but she and Cyril have been busy upstairs getting up the beds and that sort of thing, so they could not turn their hand to all this lumber, kicking over some books as he spoke. Molly is very young, returned Audrey, feeling she must take them under her protection at once, and as usual, acting on her impulse. Is your name Kester? What an uncommon name, but I like it somehow. I am so sorry to see you are an invalid, but you can get about a little on crutches? Sometimes, not always, when my hip is bad, was the brief response. Has it always been so? In a pitying voice. Well, ever since I was a little chap and Cyril dropped me, I don't know how it happened. It was not very big either. It is so long ago that I never remember feeling like the other fellas. And Kester sighed impatiently and kicked over some more books. There I go, upsetting everything, but there's no room to move. We had our dinner such as it was in the kitchen. Not like I'd eat it, eh, Molly? Molly shook her head sadly. You have not eaten a bit today. Cyril promised to bring in some buns for tea, but I dare say he'll forget all about it. A sudden thought struck Audrey. These two poor children did look so disconsolate. Molly's tired face was quite dust-begrimed. She had been crying, too, probably with worry and over-fatigue, for the reddened eyelids betrayed her. I have a bright idea, she said in her pleasant, friendly way. Why should you not have tea in the garden? You have a nice little lawn, and it will not be too sunny near the house. If Biddy will only be good enough to boil the kettle, I will run and fetch a teapot. It is no use hunting in those hampers. You are far too tired, Molly. We will just lift out this little table. I see it as flaps, so it will be large enough. And if you can find a few teacups and plates, I will be back in a quarter of an hour with the other things. Audrey did not specify what other things she meant. She left that a pleasing mystery to be unraveled by and by. She only waited to lift out the table and then started off on her quest. The rights could not give her half she wanted. But Audrey, in her own erratic fashion, was a woman of resources. She made her way quickly to Woodcott, and entering it through the back premises, just as her sister was walking leisurely up to the front door, she went straight to the kitchen to make her raid. Cooper was evidently accustomed to her young mistress's eccentric demands. She fetched one article after another, as Audrey named them. A teapot, a clean cloth, a quarter of a pound of the best tea, a little tin of cream from the dairy half a dozen new laid eggs, a freshly baked loaf hot from the oven, and some crisp, delicious-looking cakes, finally a pat of firm yellow butter, and with this last article, Audrey pronounced herself satisfied. You better let Joe carry some of the things, Miss Audrey, suggested Cooper as she packed her large basket. He is round about somewhere, and Audrey assented to this. Geraldine was just beginning her Blake story, and Mrs. Ross was listening to her with a troubled face, as Audrey, armed with a teapot and followed by Joe with a basket, turned in again at the green gate of the grey cottage.